Elvis. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about boxer Sonny Liston are insane. His fists, each with a circumference of 15 inches, were the largest of any heavyweight fighter. Opponents were terrified to get into the ring with him, because when they did, they often got the beating of their lives. But Sonny Liston's enormous fists weren't the only things that put fear in the hearts of many. He was connected to some well-connected men, some of the most feared men of the criminal underworld. That dubious association would win him some fights, lose him some fights, and ultimately kill him. Through it all, Sonny Liston was a part of some of the greatest and some of the most shocking sports moments of all time. Unlike that music I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great sports moment. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called St. Louis Shuffle MK1. I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights from ABC to a broadcast of the heavyweight title fight in Miami between defending champion Sonny Liston and brash contender Cassius Clay. And why would I play you that particular slice of sting-like-a-bee sporting cheese could I afford it? Because that was the biggest event in sports on February 25th, 1964. And that was the day that Sonny Liston, the most feared boxer in the world, was dethroned by a TKO so improbable that it threatened to bring the dark reality of boxing's underworld into the cold light of day. On this episode, savage beatings, well-connected men, improbable TKOs, and the guy they called the Big Bear, Sonny Liston. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season two, Sportsland. March 11, 1964, Denver, Colorado, late. The stars struggled to come out in the sky, and they were beat back by darkness. A darkness not just on the edge of town, but all over town. The needle on the Cadillac speedometer flirted with 70 miles an hour. Sonny Liston sank his foot into the accelerator and the engine gurgled 71, 72, 73, the caddy's headlights illuminated a street sign coming up on the right. It read 30 miles per hour. Not that Sonny could even read what it said. Sonny Liston couldn't read a damn thing. Never learned how. Plus, he was drunk. His hands held loosely onto the wheel, and they were the same hands that made 15-inch fists and once made him heavyweight champion of the world. The very ones a sports writer once referred to as cannonballs. Blue lights sprang up from behind, and then a siren. Sonny was drunker than he thought. He was into half a bottle of vodka at that point, the cheap stuff. Sonny decided not to give chase. He'd run from the cops before, back in 61. And he wasn't just arrested then. He lost his boxing license. It was also the reason he had wound up in Denver in the first place sent to this mile-high town for rehab to earn back the privilege to fight professionally. His teacher was Father Murphy, 
put there in Sonny's life by God himself to help Sonny get his ship back together and his license to box reinstated, which he had. So before shit fell apart again, he decided to pull over on the side of the road. Sonny threw the caddy in park. Some pencil neck stepped from the police car and began to make the intimidating walk to the driver's side. Sonny felt the pocket of his jacket. His 22 pistol was safe inside, a seven shot still had six bullets left, and the steel was cold. The cop reached the driver's side window, which Sonny had rolled down. Do you know why I pulled you over? The cop asked. Sonny had been arrested nearly 20 times in the last 10 years. Everything from armed robbery to assaulting an officer to just being a black man in a white man's world. He could take an educated guess, but didn't feel much like talking. I clocked you doing 76 in a 30, the cop said, answering his own question. The young cop was one of the few on the force who wasn't yet familiar with Sonny Liston, either his reputation on the street or in the ring. He asked Sonny for his driver's license. Sonny didn't have one. He asked Sonny to get out of the car, and that's when the cop smelled the booze. The cop also felt the 22 in Sonny's pocket as he patted him down. You been drinking tonight? The cop asked. Sonny told him about the half bottle of vodka. The cop took out his cuffs, and Sonny was under arrest for reckless and careless driving, speeding, carrying a concealed weapon, and driving without a Colorado license. Instead of putting his hands behind his back, Sonny put them up in front of his body. You want to go a few rounds? Sonny asked. You want to tussle? And the cop still had no idea who he was busting. Sonny listened. He radioed for backup. By the time he got down to the station, Sonny Liston was no longer anonymous. The other officers in the station house informed the unhip cop that that's Sonny Liston, the meanest motherfucker that ever was. Sonny sat alone on a chair, arms on his knees, the memory of vodka dry on his tongue. One of the cops walked up to him and gave him a friendly pat on the back. That was a hell of a thing, Sonny, that fight with Clay. Sonny nodded. He agreed. It was a hell of a thing. And suddenly, the vodka wasn't the only memory he was thinking of. February 25th, 1964, Miami. Sonny Liston, heavyweight champion of the world, sat on a stool in his corner of the ring at the Miami Beach Convention Center. Blood ran from a cut under his left eye. His left shoulder felt like it was on fire. His left arm was numb. And that was his fuck you up arm, the left. That's the one that jabbed and hooked like a sledgehammer with a grudge. His team worked fast to get him ready for round seven. They sopped up the blood, they iced the parts that burned, they rubbed his shoulders. In the opposite corner, Cassius Clay danced. He'd been dancing all night. He had danced right into the stadium wearing a denim jacket that had the words bear hunting stitched into the back. A not so subtle jab at Sonny's nickname, Big Bear. There was nothing subtle about Cassius Clay. Despite Clay's playful confidence, Clay's doctor, Ferdy Pacheco, worried that Sonny Liston was going to murder Cassius Clay. Sonny had previously taken the belt from champ Floyd Patterson in his typically devastating fashion, like a Mack truck meeting a Mini Cooper head on. Sonny clobbered Patterson, and now Sonny was gonna fucking kill Cassius Clay. But that was six rounds ago, and Dr. Ferdy's perspective had shifted. Now, he was nervously awaiting, along with the rest of the crowd, to see if Sonny Liston was even going to stand up again. The bell for round seven rang out. Sonny had spent six rounds taking those sledgehammer swings at Cassius Clay. 
Clay was supposed to be all talk. Clay was a hype man. Clay had nothing on Sonny listed. Sonny was the seven to one favorite. Clay was the long shot. Sonny had a big fist. All Clay had was a big mouth. Sonny had been boxing professionally for 10 years, 36 fights, only one loss. And that loss was courtesy of Marty Marshall in 54. Marty broke Sonny's jaw. Sonny fought him again twice more, both times. He made Marty wish he just lost to Sonny that first time. Now, Sonny was just wishing that he put Clay down earlier. His fuck you up arm was fucked up. And the bell for round seven rang out again. Sonny shook his head. He stayed where he was on the stool. He wasn't getting up. It was over. His 37th fight would be the second loss of his career. Cassius Clay started up with his hype man rap again. I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. Sonny Liston sat on his stool and wondered what kind of payday was waiting for the lucky bastard who had dared bet against him. Back in Denver, the cops let Sonny off easy. He posted the $300 bond. And even though it was a felony for an ex-con to carry a piece in Colorado, the charge was reduced to a misdemeanor. Someone was looking out for him. Someone on the inside or someone on the outside who had clout on the inside. Didn't matter. Sonny was just glad that he hadn't lost his license to box again. Because all he was thinking about was getting back in the ring with Clay. A rematch played over and over in his mind. And in that rematch, Sonny mopped the map with that fast-talking son of a bitch. He could do it, but it wouldn't be easy. That was made crystal clear the day after Sonny's arrest for speeding. And there was a knock at his door. Federal marshals, he was served. A $115,000 lawsuit from Ben Bentley in Chicago, accusing Sonny's company, Intercontinental, of failing to honor an agreement to give Bentley exclusive closed circuit rights to Sonny's fights in the Windy City. Meanwhile, Florida's attorney general was investigating the Miami bout after rumors of its legitimacy the AG had questions. Had Sonny Liston really hurt his arm? Or was there another reason the fight ended? Was it a fix? And also, why did Intercontinental, Sonny's own company, pony up an additional $50,000 to pick Cassius Clay's next opponent and promote the fight before Clay's fight with Sonny had even taken place? Unless, of course, Sonny and the men he worked with knew the outcome of the Sonny Liston-Cassius Clay match ahead of time. It reminded Sonny of the bullshit with another attorney general, the U.S. Attorney General, Bobby Kennedy. The questions, the inquiries, the accusations, the questions followed him wherever he went. They were always about the same thing. The shady men from New York City or St. Louis who had bankrolled Sonny's career in professional boxing in the first place. What did Sonny know about John J. Vitale? What about Blinky Palermo, Big Barty Baker? And what exactly was his relationship with the guy they called The Gray? the underworld boxing czar who was feared just as much as Sonny's fists. Sonny Liston hated questions. He just wanted to get back in the ring. That's where he was used to answering people with brutal violence. The rain came down sideways. It was cold. 
The neon outside the dive tavern on O'Fallon Street hummed like it was trying to make music with that frozen pitter-patter of the wet night. David Hurlis stood outside, sheltered along the shadows of the tavern's long wall, and cased the joint. He lit another cigarette to pass the time. January 14th, 1950, St. Louis, Missouri. David Hurlith, a young patrolman with the St. Louis Police Department, was waiting for his man. He'd seen him go inside the tavern, the yellow shirt bandit. They called this particular petty thief by that name because he always wore the same yellow and black checkered shirt when his crew robbed another local business. He was impossible to miss, easy to ID. But he had evaded capture, somehow, until now. And that evening alone, the yellow shirt bandit and his crew pulled not just one job, but two. They hit the diner first, the unique cafe, Market Street. The place was a ghost town. One employee behind the counter, the crew entered fast. A revolver came from a pocket. The hammer pulled back point blank in the employee's face. The money, now. Yellow shirt guy took all the cash from the register and they were gone. Next, the gas station at the corner of Easton and Prairie. Same deal, deserted, one sorry ass attendant. They were inside fast again. The 32 came out. It was aimed and they made the demand. The register popped open and they were gone. But now, Patrolman Hurleth had them trapped. They were inside this dive tavern. Hurleth waited while the bandit most likely blew that night's take on beer and ribs. Minutes later, the tavern's front door opened and the yellow shirt bandit stepped outside. Patrolman Hurleth drew his 38 service revolver. He stepped from the shadows. Hold up, son, Hurleth said. Real calm, he cocked the 38 against the wall. The bandit kissed Brick. At the station, Patrolman Hurleth put a name to the yellow shirt. Charles Liston said he was 22. Charles Liston said he was from Arkansas. Patrolman Hurleth took him at his word. But as the years went on, and Charles Liston became better known as the feared boxer Sonny Liston, the year and place of his birth would change. Was it Pine Bluff or Forest City? Sandslow or Memphis, 1928 or 1933. Sonny Liston didn't even know. Perhaps what he did know, however, was that he added another layer to his mythology every time he answered a question. Because just like the shady world of professional boxing, there was a lot of gray area when it came to Sonny Liston. Some things were true, and some things were not. The only thing people really knew about Sonny Liston was that they didn't want to fight him. He was the best, which meant he was the meanest, the baddest. Some would say he was too mean, too bad. And that's what the inmates at the Missouri State Penitentiary said, where Sonny was sent to do his time following a string of yellow shirt bandit robberies. It was there from 1950 to 1952 that he earned his first heavyweight title. Trained by the prison's Catholic chaplain, Sonny became undisputed champ of the pen. He was undisputed because no one dared dispute him. They had to put two opponents in the ring just to make things even, and they still weren't even, or so they said. It was there in Missouri City that he officially got the nickname Sonny, or so they said. It was there that Sonny backhanded one of the three leaders of the feared white prison gangs when he overheard him giving shit to another black kid. Sonny told him that if he heard one more piece of backwards cracker drivel coming out of his mouth, he'd leave him crying for his mommy in the hole, a dank storage room at the bottom of the joint, or so they said. It was there that the shit-talking gang leader decided to tempt fate and meet Sonny in the hole for what promised to be a beatdown of mythic proportions. He brought the other two other white gang leaders with him to make things even, and Sonny left all three of them in a pool of their own piss and shit and blood writhing around on the concrete, 
one with internal hemorrhaging and the other with probable brain damage, or so they said. And they kept saying that Sonny was the baddest of the bad. All he has to do is breathe on you and you hurt. Nothing's gonna beat Sonny Liston but old age. He's arrogant, mean, rude, and altogether frightening. He's a mother in a fucker's game. He's bad. Why? Because he's just bad. Even the NAACP thought so. Years later, in 1962, the NAACP lobbied to prevent heavyweight champion Floyd Patterson from fighting Sonny Liston. And then, just about 10 years into his professional career, Floyd Patterson was good PR. He was clean. He didn't have a criminal background. He wasn't perceived by the public as the devil himself. Meanwhile, Sonny's rap sheet was longer than his boxing record. And more importantly, the NAACP knew that Sonny would destroy Floyd Patterson in the ring. Bad would conquer good and that inevitable victory would be a bad look, especially in the midst of the burgeoning civil rights movement. It wasn't just that Sonny Liston was mean as shit. It was the people he was associated with as well. The people in the shadows, the ones who pulled the strings from the dank depths of the underworld. Floyd Patterson's buddy, former Harvard boxer and current president of the United States, John F. Kennedy, knew all about the people Sonny associated with. He advised Floyd Patterson to pass on Sonny Liston. JFK's brother, Attorney General Bobby Kennedy, had been investigating corruption in boxing for years. He was there when they took down some of the biggest names in underworld fight fixing. Guys like Joe Sicca, Louis Tom Dragna, Truman Gibson, Blinky Palermo, and Mr. Gray himself, AKA the Gray, AKA that man down south, AKA our cousin, AKA Frankie Carbo. All actual pseudonyms that Paul John Carbo was proud of. They lent an air of respect, of mystery. Paul John Carbo, whatever he was called, was the real deal. Trigger Man for Murder Incorporated under the tutelage of Louis Lepke Buckelter, boxing promoter, boxing fixer, boxing czar. The International Boxing Club may have been the front-facing legal corporation for the promotion of professional bouts, but Paul John Carbo was the shadowy man that the IBC was in bed with, AKA the gray, and he had complete control. Sometimes that control meant deciding how a fight would go down before two men ever stepped into the ring. Paul John Carbo worked hand-in-hand hand with Frankie Blinky Palermo, the guy who ran Philly's largest numbers racket, the same guy behind the fix of the Jake LaMotta-Billy Fox fight in 1957. In 59, Paul John Carbo and Blinky Palermo were busted along with Sicca, Draga, and Gibson for trying to extort control of boxing champ Don Jordan, and they were all found guilty in 1961. Paul John Carbo was currently doing 25 years at Alcatraz. But that didn't mean that Carbo wasn't still in control. Bobby Kennedy knew there were more layers to the onion. He just needed to keep peeling away. Sonny Liston's manager was, in actuality, Paul John Carbo's puppet. Paul John Carbo called the shots, even from a prison cell, even from Alcatraz. And so, one of the caveats for Sonny to face Floyd Patterson in the ring, a caveat demanded by Floyd's manager, was that Sonny had to get a new manager. Someone on the up and up, someone to help Sonny fly straight. Jack Nylon came on board, even if his actual title was not manager, but advisor. Sonny's old manager would still get paid for the time left on his contract. It was a messy arrangement, and the only people who could make sense of it all were doing serious time. Meanwhile, Floyd Patterson went against the advice of JFK, the NAACP, and his own trainer. 
he agreed to meet Sonny Liston in the ring. And the heavyweight bout was on. Chicago, September 25th, 1962, Comiskey Park. Not even two minutes into the fight, Sonny Liston grabbed the world champion Floyd Patterson with his right glove and held him in place. And he then proceeded to beat him with his fuck you up left, 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 left. Floyd hugged the ropes. Then a huge left hook, quick right to the body, another sledgehammer left. Floyd Patterson went down like a brick. And the fight lasted two minutes and six seconds, fastest heavyweight title drop in 24 years. Sonny Liston remained the meanest motherfucker around, but now he was also the 21st heavyweight champion of the world. And the NAACP was not pleased, and neither was JFK. Because unlike Floyd Patterson, Sonny Liston was a bad, bad man. Sonny flew back to Philadelphia, the city he was currently calling home, and was greeted not by adoring fans or newspaper cameras, but an empty stretch of cracked pavement. No one gave two shits that Sonny Liston was the champion. If Sonny was lacking attention, he got it just a few weeks later, courtesy of his federal government foil, a pissant Bobby Kennedy. Bobby wasn't buying the fly straight BS that Sonny was weakly peddling. He knew there were onion layers left to peel back. Sonny wasn't just mean, he was dirty, or so they said. And so Bobby Kennedy wondered if a new investigation, one overseen by the Department of Justice, was a necessity in order to find out just how dirty Sonny Liston really was. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. It wasn't every day that the people of Lewiston, Maine saw a nation of Islam bodyguards loitering outside the local hockey rink. Actually, it was never. Lewiston, or as it's affectionately known throughout the state, the Dirty Lou, was blue-collar Franco-American. 40,000 people, the second largest city in Maine, the whitest state in the country. You could count the number of black families on one hand. Admittedly, the fruit of Islam bow ties weren't looking to blend in. They wanted their presence known. Ditto for the dozen G-men sent up by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. They were there to make sure that the sleepy mill city along the Androscoggin River didn't erupt into chaos and violence. But their primary focus, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, was to form an unbreakable barrier around the fighter formerly known as Cassius Clay. Because while the fruit of Islam suspected that harm was about to come to their man, the feds had proof. May 25th, 1965. They didn't call him Cassius Clay anymore. He was Muhammad Ali now. Back in 64, just days after he defied the odds in the sledgehammer fists of Sonny Liston in the title fight upset, Clay publicly announced his allegiance with the Nation of Islam. He was reborn, first as Cassius X, and then as Muhammad Ali. And with the soapbox afforded him by being a famous athlete, he knew he could champion more than just himself. He could champion political and social causes that were close to his heart. He was free to be who he wanted to be, but freedom was easier said than done. What Ali really wanted to do was to hang out with Malcolm X, but Malcolm was a recent enemy of the Nation of Islam. Malcolm had fallen out with the organization over the past year. He thought the group's leader, Elijah Muhammad, was turning into a hypocrite. 
and Elijah Muhammad thought Malcolm X was too polarizing. Muhammad Ali cared what Elijah Muhammad thought, and Elijah Muhammad would not give Muhammad Ali's relationship with Malcolm X a proper blessing. So Muhammad Ali turned his back on Malcolm X. Not long after, Malcolm X was shot 21 times while speaking to a crowd in Harlem. The Nation of Islam took the heat for the assassination, and Muhammad Ali took heat for his heavily publicized diss of Malcolm X and for his association with the highly controversial Nation of Islam and found himself caught up in the fallout. Threats were made on his life. Word on the street was that the champ was going down, and it wasn't going to be from the fists of Sonny Liston. This threat of violence, along with the ongoing scuttlebutt surrounding Sonny Liston and his ties to shadowy men in the underworld, was what led to the rematch between Muhammad Ali and Sonny Liston getting moved to Lewiston, Maine in the first place. All that talk of violence and the fact that the fight was happening in rural Maine meant that one of the most talked about matches in boxing history was undersold. The rematch set an all-time record for lowest attendance ever for a heavyweight title fight. 2,434 people meant that the St. Dominic's Arena was barely at half capacity. But there was one person in Lewiston, Maine that day who wasn't faced by the Elijah Muhammad Malcolm X Muhammad Ali scuttlebutt, or the black men in bow ties, or the white men in black, or the undersold arena. And that person was Sonny Liston. He didn't care if there were 20 people in the crowd or 20,000. He didn't care what the fast talker in the other corner wanted to call himself. Cassius Clay, Cassius X, Muhammad Ali, he could call himself fucking Santa Claus, mattered 0%. All Sonny was concerned about was getting into the ring and doing what he was supposed to do, answering. He had one goal, one aim, and he was gonna carry that out with maximum efficiency, 100% commitment, and a positive fucking mental attitude. But goals and aims are subject to change, especially when you aren't the one with complete control. So what was Sonny Liston supposed to do? Whatever needed to be done in order to make the most money for the guys running the racket, running professional boxing, running Sonny Liston. And it happened fast. The collective air was sucked from the St. Dominic's arena by the crowd's collective gasp. Sonny Liston was on the mat and Muhammad Ali towered over him with the swagger of an impossible yet inevitable foe. Sonny Liston went down so fast that half the audience missed it. They had turned their backs for a split second, reached for a handful of popcorn, scratched an itch, yawned, blinked, and then Sonny was on the floor. He looked dumbstruck. Either Sonny Liston had once again seriously underestimated Muhammad Ali, or Sonny's underworld team of string pullers had subverted his true abilities with one simple directive. You go down in the first round. For the audience, they had either just witnessed some sort of dark magic emanate from the gloves of the defending champion, or Sonny had taken a fall. Large sections of the crowd were furious, and it wasn't just because they paid 150 bucks for ringside seats for a match that was over in a flash. They let their anger and their suspicion be known right there, chanting out, fix, fix, fix. Ali danced. The cries from the crowd continued, fake, fake, fake. Something was off, something was up. Ali's now infamous phantom punch was just that, a fast right that didn't seem to actually even connect with Sonny's body. It just sailed by while Sonny fell hopelessly to the mat. Ali called it his anchor punch and claimed he learned it from actor Stepin Fetchit, who had learned it from champ Jack Johnson. But even Ali seemed unsure that night whether the punch landed or not. And for a few seconds after Sonny went down, there was confusion. Ali refused to go to a neutral corner in the ring, instead dancing around Sonny and taunting him, 
It distracted the ref, who didn't start a count, and the knockdown timekeeper had started a count, even if Sonny was waiting for Ali to dance back into a neutral corner before getting up. But the knockout timekeeper didn't have a microphone, and the decision stood. Muhammad Ali remained champion of the world. The main boxing commission seized both boxers' gloves as evidence to determine whether there was foul play in the fight. Pundits rewatched the tape over and over again like it was the Zapruder film. Meanwhile, word of the fight's unbelievable outcome reached Paul John Carbo and Bobby Kennedy, now a U.S. senator in equal time. It had become obvious to everyone that with this fight, there was more going on than could be seen with the naked eye. Blood was everywhere. Sonny Liston's boxing gloves were covered in it. The ref had picked the wrong time to get close to the two fighters in the ring, so the blood splattered all over his shirt, too. Sonny had brought his sledgehammer left to Chuck Wepner's face. Chuck's schnoz popped open like a Roma tomato. June 29, 1970. Sonny took the W that night while the blood geysered down Chuck's face. They didn't call Chuck the Bayonne Bleeder for nothing. In addition to a broken nose, Chuck Wepner's cheekbone was busted. Sonny opened six cuts on Chuck's face. Chuck needed 72 stitches. Chuck Wepner would bleed again and again in subsequent fights, including one against Sonny's old nemesis, Muhammad Ali. That one would serve as inspiration for Sylvester Stallone to write a screenplay about an underdog named Rocky. But even though Sonny Liston unceremoniously ended his boxing career with only four losses and a heroic 50 wins, including that final win, a bloody pummeling of Chuck Wepner, no one felt inspired to spin Sonny Liston's story into box office gold. In fact, there were a handful of people who were the opposite of inspired. Some of them had a direct line to Paul John Carbo, AKA the Gray, AKA the man who controlled boxing. Some of them kept their eyes on the books in Vegas, where Sonny was making a home and making the rounds in a pink Cadillac. Some may have been under the impression that Sonny was supposed to have taken the fall in the Chuck Wepner fight, and they were irritated that he hadn't. Some may have been concerned that Sonny knew more than he was letting on about Ali's phantom punch back in Lewiston, Maine, not to mention the potential spoils to reap from subsequent Ali bouts. To some, Sonny Liston had become either the man who wouldn't do as he was told, or the man who knew too much. And as such, Sonny Liston was outliving his usefulness. A growing number of made men didn't have patience for him anymore. Mo Dallitz, AKA Mr. Las Vegas, straight up threatened Sonny when Sonny greeted him on the strip with a playfully cocked fist. If you hit me, you better fucking kill me, Mo reportedly said. Because if you don't, I pick up the phone and make a call and you'll be a fucking dead man in a day. It wasn't a day later, but shortly after that encounter, Sonny Liston did turn up dead. His wife, Geraldine, upon returning to Vegas from visiting family in St. Louis, found his body in their unlocked house. He was at the foot of the bed in his underwear. He was bloated. Blood ran from his nose. He'd been dead at least a week. It was January 5th, 1971. 
The cops found a plastic baggie of grass, half-empty glass of vodka, penny balloon of junk on the counter, but no syringe, no wounds, no weapons. An autopsy would later reveal traces of morphine and codeine, and maybe proof of a breakdown of heroin in his body, but not enough proof to rule it as the cause of his death. Was it a tragic overdose, or was it a fix? If it was a fix, there were no hard feelings, it was just business. Sonny had gone from asset to liability on the balance sheet. On the other hand, perhaps the drugs weren't planted and the smack was injected under duress. Maybe Sonny Liston was, like many a poor sap in Sin City, just down for the count in the game of life. So which was it? They say follow the money, but in Sonny's case, there wasn't any money to follow. Sonny made 13 grand in his final fight with Chuck Webner. 10 grand of that take was used to repay a gambling debt to a friend who spotted Sonny the cash when he placed an extremely unlucky bet on a boxing match. And the other three grand went to pay out the guys who worked Sonny's corner during the fight. He had nothing left. Sonny spent the latter half of 1970 finding himself back on the wrong side of the law like the old days in order to scrounge up dough. He hustled $50 bags of cocaine. He offered up his weathered yet still fearsome body as muscle for Vegas loan sharks. He endeared himself to the staff of the Las Vegas Police Department so that they would go easy on him should he be picked up swerving lanes in that unmissable pink caddy. The Los Angeles Police Department didn't get that particular memo, though. In December 1970, weeks before Sonny was knocked out for the last time in his Vegas home, an LAPD patrolman picked up Sonny bobbing and weaving his Cadillac on the 10. And just like the cop who had pulled Sonny over in Denver six years before, the fresh-faced kid had no clue who Sonny Liston was. He didn't know that he had pulled over the Sonny Liston, the meanest motherfucker that ever was. He didn't know about Sonny's fists, about the fear he stirred in the hearts of men. He didn't know about the man who couldn't feel fear, men like the gray, or about all the gray areas surrounding just about every aspect of Sonny's life and professional career. The cop just smelled booze on Sonny's breath and asked the standard protocol questions. License, name, occupation, I'm a boxer, Sonny replied, currently unemployed. And the officer had to take him at his word, even if every word had to be taken with a grain of salt. You never knew what was true and what was false with Sonny Liston. You never knew when the game was just getting started and when the game was over. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. It's a show of guys.